morning. Uh, take a minute, if you've uh, got an I, or a, a smartphone, an iPad, um, a real live Bible, uh, if you don't have one, there's plenty here and in the back. We're going to be reading out of John 16, so I want you to read along with me. I'm reading out of the New American Standard, so it might be a little different than what you have, but we're going to read the Bible together, okay? Okay? All right, there we go. Very good. Now remember the context, okay? Clear back since chapter 13, we've been in the upper room, and so this is where Christ talks to his disciples. We're in 16, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you, that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Take courage. I've overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you have protected your word (laughs) through scroll, through paper, through book, through electronic. God, that it is in our hands that you give it to us, that you preserved it for us. God, now, as Todd preaches, I pray, Father, that uh, the Holy Spirit would join with our spirit as we study and learn from your word. God, may your word change us today. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, have a seat. How's everybody doing? It's good having you here, especially in light of some stupid game this afternoon. I mean, seriously, the Super Bowl doesn't even matter this year. Blah, 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 blah. Isn't it it sad when you have to kind of cheer for the lesser of two evils? You know, it's like... Somebody asked me who I hope wins, and I said, I hope it's a tie. First ever. (laughs) But anyways, here's where we're at. We've been talking about this whole idea uh, all along since chapter 13, like Dan talked about, that what Jesus is doing, it's kind of his last will and testament. He's sitting down with his main guys that he's been with for the last three, four years, and it's kind of these last words that he's going to throw out to them before he goes to be with the Father. And in it, you've just seen this over and over. He's doing it. And the whole thing is, is, it says he loved them to the end. He's just keeping on loving them. In spite of the fact of what he's about ready to face, the thing that's just this amazing picture about Jesus is the way that he just keeps loving these guys. Now, one of the things that I want to connect the dot, because we talked about this idea of calling on God last week. We talked about one of the greatest joys that we have is the capacity to be able to call on the Father. That was one of the things we talked about. 
And so if you remember all the way back in chapter 14, let me throw this up there. We had this concept in which Jesus talked to them and he said, look, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And we talked about in my name means asking as Jesus would have me to ask, not as I want to ask, but believing that Jesus, he knows better than I do. He created me. He created this world. And so therefore, I sh- I am, I'm, I'm stupid to think I know what I need. We're asking in Jesus's name is the idea. And look at this. Here's the purpose that the father may be glorified in the son. The chief goal of every single believer is that we are designed to bring glory to God, to reflect his incredibleness, not only back to him, but to the world. Now watch this in this next verse. We talked about this last week. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Now here's the same exact concept, but look at this. That your joy may be full. Now go to the next slide. Now just focus on those two things. Think about this. We tend to think that when I do things that glorify God, they bring me less joy. What Jesus is saying is, is that no, when you do things that bring most glory, that that, that bring most honor, that show off God most, that increases your joy. Everything about what Jesus is doing is, is he's connecting intimately how God has brought glory And how that is intimately connected to our joy. And remember we talked about joy last week. It's not some deep joy that some mystic guru has. It has everything to do with a right view of God. And God settling that right view into our hearts. And what comes out is this thing the Bible calls joy. Now what he's doing is he's now connecting. And what he's going to throw out to this group of people in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 16. Is he's talked about joy in the capacity we have to go and talk to the creator of the universe. And we talked about that last week, how that brings joy. And what he's going to do now in 25 through 33 is he's going to connect these dots. He's going to take verses 23 through 24, and now he's going to expand it out, what he means about this privilege that we have and this joy that we receive by getting to go and talk to the Father. Now what's key in this, though, is this is what's always been important to the people of God. Like if you go back to Genesis 4, it talks about after the fall and finally Seth is born to Adam and Eve. And it says something so unique about the people of God. It says at that time, they begin to call on the name of the Lord. And what that then started was a biblical pattern that in Genesis 12, Abraham, this friend of God, this one that that God called out of all people he could have called out. In Genesis 12, then it even works it out where a mark of Abraham was that he called on the name of the Lord. We see this even in the life of David. One of the things that sets out for him inside of 1 Chronicles is this this concept in which he was passionate about crying out to the Lord. In fact, many of his psalms are filled with this reality that that God's people, there's just something about us that we just, we want to cry out to the Lord. Elijah, when he was set up against the prophets of the false gods, the one thing that happened was is after they had failed then, it says all of a sudden Elijah did what he did and it says he cried out to the Lord and the Lord answered him in an amazing way. Even in Isaiah 64, here's what's crazy. The mark of when you know God's people are not doing well is they stop crying out to the Lord. And then in Zephaniah, he connects this interesting thing. In Zephaniah 3.9, he says, in fact, the mark that you will know that God's people are being reinvigorated again is what will they do? They'll cry out to the Lord. 
And even that gets connected into the book of Acts, that in the book of Acts, the way that Christians are known when we get to Acts 9 is that this group of people is so distinct, they're known as people that now don't just cry out to the Lord. We connect this idea of Jesus' deity. They cry out to Jesus. And even in 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul is writing this just knuckle-headed church in Corinth, he says, the mark of you all is saints. And the mark of saints all around the world is that they call upon Jesus. See, this is what Jesus is starting to lay out, this reality that God's people just know that's our daddy. And so what now Jesus is going to do, and you see this when you get down in this text, you see that he's going to connect this idea of joy and prayer. And in verse 25 now, he's going to transition in, and he's going to explain fully 23 and 24. So look at verse 25. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Jesus says this, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, in this particular case, it's not necessarily like a parable. Some of your translations might say a parable. Really, what he's talking about here is really a figure of speech. All the way from chapter 13, he's been kind of speaking in this vine and branches thing, the helper thing. He's been using all these figures of speech. But in that word, in the Greek, what's loaded into it is that in other words, he's just kind of giving them a small taste of a greater reality. Have you guys ever seen an iceberg before? Look up there, an iceberg in the ocean. We know this, that above the water in an iceberg, because of Archimedes' principle, which probably most of you could care less about, it's not because of Archimedes' principle. He found it out. It's because of the God principle. It, um, 10% or so of that iceberg sticks out. Below the water is 90% of that ice mass. And what Jesus is saying to these guys, that's what this word means, is, fellas, you only have the tip of the iceberg. Now, they had no clue about it. And I can just imagine old John looking back on it going, we had no clue. We had no idea what was going to happen. And he remembered probably that moment that finally, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them in Acts 2, we know this Peter who had run away from a little slave girl, suddenly he stands up in front of all the people at the moment that that fell upon him at Pentecost, and he starts preaching a sermon that everybody looked around and said, these aren't learned men. No. All of the information for three or four years finally landed. The Holy Spirit grabbed it inside of the life of Peter, and bam, watch out. He went from knucklehead to theologian overnight. See, that's what John's looking back on and remembering when Jesus said, fellas, you have no clue. I've told you all these things about abiding and this helper coming, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. And specifically now, when he gets down to this, he's wanting them to understand something super important. He was going to speak to them plainly. Look at verse 26, about who? The Father. Now, this is very important inside of what he's trying to do here, because now he's connecting this reality. And we we kind of opened it up a little bit last week, that he's leaving But as he leaves now, he wants them to understand that in the same way that he has been the one and only son of the father, all of this was kicked into motion so that they might be adopted sons and daughters of the father. See, Paul understood this. Let me show you up here in in, in Romans 8. 
We talked about this last week, this idea that Jesus was talking about this joy that was going to come. He says, so there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. And we talked about this last week, how amazing it is. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And we talked about this last week. Those of you that know Jesus, y'all are good. But in verse 9, he's going to keep going. Now, Paul wants us to understand more. He says, but you're no longer controlled by that old sinful nature. It's what Jesus promised in John 3. You're going to be born again. You're controlled by the spirit if you have the spirit of God living in you. And remember, those that do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. But Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. Hello. And the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give you life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Man, keep going, Paul. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by the dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live and just settle this into your gut. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And he's not even done. Watch this. So now you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call the creator of the universe, the great I am, Abba, Daddy, Father. Are you kidding me? Jesus is trying to get across them. I'm, you're going to learn more about this whole father thing. You guys have no clue. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we're his children, we're his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. This is exactly what John, what Jesus has been laying out all throughout John 13, 14, 15, and 16. He's trying to get them to the point that when Jesus Christ dies, he's buried, and he rose again, everything changes. Every last thing changes. So with that, what Jesus is now going to do, and, and he's going to walk through this in a very just powerful way. He's going to now help them understand this father thing. He's going to give them two just amazing realities about their relationship with the father. Okay, You're, this is what we're going to see today. One relationship we're going to see is the love the father has for us. And by the way, I think this is one thing that is so mangled inside of the church is the reality of that the father of his love for those of us that are his adopted children. But also he's going to talk about, and I know this isn't a word, but I, I don't care. George Bush could come up with words, so, so will I. The ever presence of the father. He's always with us. So this is where he's going to go today. So everybody buckle in. Look at verse 26, because here's now he's going to lay out the love of the Father. Here's one of the key things that we need to understand about who the Father is that these guys are going to learn about probably later. Verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you, to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. 
Now, this little verse, what he's connecting to is is this idea that when he says, when you're going to pray in my name, you need to understand that does not disconnect you in the least from the Father. He's laying out this reality that you'll no longer go through me. As an adopted child of God, what he's saying is, is you will go directly to the Father like I have. In all of my ministry on earth, he's saying, in the same way that I've gone to the Father, as an adopted child of God, you will now go to the Father. Now, in the back of their heads, he must have known what they were thinking. Well, then why, Jesus? Why do we get to do this? Look at verse 27. Why do we have this aspect? For the Father himself loves you. He loves you. Now, to a Jewish mind at that time, it must have been mind-blowing for Jesus to say that to him. He wasn't using what we sometimes hear about sometimes, uh, agape or agapao, this love, this grand, just far-reaching love of God. He didn't use that word here. That word would almost seem so disconnected, that self-sacrificial love that, that, that we talk about oftentimes that's this supreme, grand love of God. He wasn't using that particular word here. In fact, Jesus chose a different word, phileo, which speaks more of this idea of intimate, warm loving, familial love. He was trying to get across to them in this moment. Do you get who your daddy is? He loves you. Now the reality of this love that the father has for us, I don't think we get. And he's saying to them, look, this is why he's going to hear and answer your prayers because he's your dad. He's passionate about you. He's giddy about you. And I know sometimes to say giddy in God makes that weird, but he is. It says he sings over us. He knew from eternity past those he was going to choose according to Ephesians 1, and he couldn't wait for the moment that finally those of us that know Jesus finally repented and confessed Jesus. And all it says, the angelic realm, when one repents, what happens? The angelic realm goes, hallelujah. I don't know if it's that good, but it's, you know... (laughs) And even this little word that he includes in here, see that word himself? He loves you himself. Emphasis. He was trying to get across to him, guys, everything's about ready to change. In the same way you saw this love relationship between me and the Father, that relationship is now going to be yours to share with the Father as one of his adopted children. He loves all men. There's no doubt with his grand divine love. But the idea that he's saying is is that I won't have to talk on your behalf anymore. Now, some people say, no, he still has to intercede for us. Like, what about 1 John 2? He's still at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, and that's true. But the Father does not love us because Jesus is interceding. Jesus is interceding because the Father loves us. Huge difference. Over and over saying, there's one of your loved ones, Father. Yeah, Todd, that punk that sinned again. He's interceding for us because he knows the Father loves us. Now, it's, it's essential that we understand that in the midst of all of our failings, which is going to come up a little bit later in this particular passage, what Jesus is going to do is, is he's going to bring in this idea of love, that he loves all of us here just as much as we sit here inside of this room as tomorrow when we blow it on the freeway. 
God's love is across all boundaries. He loves us just as much today as he'll love us tomorrow and the next day, even in the midst of our ups and downs and all the things that happen to us. He just consistently loves us. The other night, I love to put my son to bed, and so I, you know, I, I grab him, and we kind of do the tickle thing, the wrestle thing, the hit thing, the things that you know men are supposed to do, and there's other things, but I won't let you in on it. And so we're sitting there, and finally we get to the point where we're going to pray, and my son looks up at me, and he goes, Daddy, are you proud of me? Careful, Todd. <laughs> Answer this one well. It could jack up his life for the rest of it. You know, so, I'm like, so I look down at my son. I go, Josiah, I'm always proud of you, and I always love you. He goes, but yeah, Daddy, I got a note home from my teacher today. <laughs> I said, Josiah, I always love you, but yeah, that did disappoint Daddy today, but that doesn't change my love for you. I'm not trying to equate myself with the Father because we are miles apart. But you start to... (laughs) Hey! I know you're junk too. (laughs) But there's just this side of it in which, man, God just infinitely perfectly, in a holy way, loves us. He's our dad. He cares about us. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day. It now lends to us finally a tremendous sense of a value. In other words, pre-Christ, I had no value. Post-Christ, I had all kinds of value. Why? Because suddenly I became a kid of the king. In fact, one of the quotes that I found by Augustine, a guy that was, uh, uh, he lived in the, in the fourth and fifth century. He said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Isn't that cool? He doesn't want us to become the spoiled single kid syndrome. Not that at all. But he loves each and every one of us passionately. See, at the end of it, in fact, we are the highest prize that God ever claimed in the universe. We are. When the angels fell, he didn't go after them. But when mankind fell, he set everything into motion to restore that relationship that we broke with him. Everything in motion. That's how much he's passionate about us. That's how much he loves us. And in fact, he doesn't love us because of us. He loves us what? In spite of us. See, let me just throw up on you. Here was my week last week, just so you know. I was unfaithful to God, I was judgmental, I was lazy, I was lustful, and if that freaks you out, just understand every man in here struggles with that. I was greedy, I was an absent husband, and I was a selfish father. And in spite of all of it, he loved me. So that means today, if you're sitting here and you're a nagging wife, and you're a follower of Jesus... God loves you. If you're a negligent father, God loves you. If you're a self-centered child, God loves you. If you're an overbearing mother, a helicopter mom, he still loves you. If you're a knuckle-headed husband, he loves you. If you're a selfish friend, he loves you. If you're a lazy worker, he loves you. If you're a greedy boss, if you're a follower of Jesus, in spite of you, 
Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to take the nagging wife and the negligent father and the overbearing mom and not have to, according to Hebrews 12, discipline those he loves. But he says, I discipline you because you're not an illegitimate child. You're mine. And so in it, this is what Jesus is trying to unpack for them. And I think so many Christians, I think about this, have just beaten themselves down with with inferiority feelings and feelings and inadequacy. But God has a deep, warm, tenderly, loving, fatherly affection for those that love Jesus, that understand what he's doing on this planet. In fact, one of my my favorite authors that I, I have, Jerry Bridges, he wrote this. God's unfailing love for us is an objective fact affirmed over and over in the scriptures. It is true whether we believe it or not. Our doubts do not destroy God's love, nor does our faith create it. It originates in the very nature of God, who is love. And it flows to us through our union with his beloved son. That means he loves us on good days, and he loves us on bad days. And this is what Jesus is trying to get apart. Now, why does he love us? Look at verse 27 again. Why? I don't know how many of you have ever asked this question, God, why do you love me? Here's his answer. Because you have loved, in this case, Jesus, and have believed that I came from God. He's laying out two realities there. Why does the Father love us? Well, number one, it has to do with an affection thing. It, it has to do with, with, with a, a passion, a personal affection for Jesus. And it has to do also with the belief that Jesus Christ really came and what his mission was about. See, what he's laying in here is, as he's beginning to help them understand, is that they literally have embraced Jesus Christ even while others fled away. They have not only embraced him, but the idea also is, is they believed fully in his mission. Now, in some senses, then some of you might be sitting out there and go, okay, well, good. I must be so great the way I love God. I must be super smart the way I've seen this mission thing. To which, let me take you back to uh, 1 John 15, 16. Just turn back. In case the apostles ever wondered if they were smart enough to know Jesus or if they loved him enough that somehow they had done something in themselves, in John 15, 16, he says this to them. Y'all didn't choose me, I chose y'all. See, in it, what he's laying out is is we didn't love God first. The only reason we love is because of what? God loved us first. Even one of my favorite passages, Matthew 16, and Peter's just confessed that Jesus Christ is, is the son of the living God, and he must have just been sitting there going, that's right, you know, everyone else had missed the question, and Jesus looks at him and he says this, Peter, you've, you've answered well, but flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, God did. See, even in the midst of this, we have to understand that we're not smart enough, we're not good enough, we don't have enough faith, it is all God, Period. The moment you ever think you play a part in your salvation, you should slap yourself. Like this, more. Not hard. Do I get this reality that God chose me? Do I get this reality that he's done all these things that are going to connect me to him? I don't have a clue in most places how the mind of God works, and I'm so glad I don't. That's what makes him so massive and so infinite, and it doesn't take away our personal responsibility to love, and it doesn't take away our personal responsibility to receive Jesus and the mission that he's called out, but at the end of the day, everything at the end of it is all about Jesus and nobody else. 
Now what he's going to do is he's going to take and unpack this I came from God thing in verse 28. Watch this. He's going to expand it out to what is this entire mission of Jesus that he's talking about. Now this word I is going to become huge here. Now I'm going to add some things in because in the, in the English it isn't there. So I'm going to kind of take from what's in the Greek, the language the New Testament was written in. And I'm going to make sure to emphasize this. Watch this. I, speaking of Jesus. I came from the Father. And I have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world. And I am going to the Father. What is it about? Jesus. The I thing, what? I chose to come here. The Father didn't manipulate me here. The Father didn't make me come here. I willfully chose to join the Father in this mission, and I came to this earth. I took on flesh. I have loved you. I have lived amongst you. I have accepted all, as people have meted out all kinds of different, just terrible things upon me. But he was also saying to me, listen to me, fellas. I am choosing to go to that cross but I one day will go back to the Father. He was laying out for them, in fact, this has been my mission. This is what you have to believe. Not only is it an affection for me, but you have to understand and then embrace, this is my mission. Now, why did Jesus do it? Well, let me just clear it up. Because he loves us. He passionately loves us. I love the, how at the end of it, how the disciples respond. Look at this, verse, 30, or verse 29. How do they respond? Ah. <laughs> Anytime you see ah, you should know, okay, these guys don't get it. <laughs> now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Now, this is going to move us into our next point. Not only does he love us, but he's ever-present with us. See, the next part of this now that Jesus is going to come into is is that they sit there and they go, oh, I I think we get it. And on some levels, they had a very infant faith that they did kind of get what was going on. And I don't know if you remember when you first came to know Jesus, but when I first came to know Jesus, I remember I thought we could take hell with a squirt gun. I mean, I came to know Jesus and it was just like, let's go. In 24 hours, I'd sat down with my seven best friends and I'd preach the gospel. And I remember I sit down with my first friend and he came to know Jesus and I'm like, "Woo! this thing's easy. Who's next? Revival up on here in my house. You know, so I'm bringing my friends in and after the first successful embrace of Jesus, I had six that said, uh-uh. All of a sudden, I'm looking at my squirt gun going, this ain't working. There's this infantile faith in there that Jesus is now going to address. Because look what he says to them. Do you really believe? It's a question and a statement kind of all in one. He is saying that they have a belief. And he's not trying to get them to to get to this point where they don't think they're loved by the Father. But he's also wanting them to understand, fellas, you're about ready to face 24 hours. It ain't going to be fun. It's almost like that guy that's gone through basic training in the Marines, right? He's now been there for nine weeks, and he's like, let's go. He's got his gun, you know, and it's like, ah! And all of a sudden, bullets start flying, and he's, you know? He's like, you don't understand the bullets are about to fly at you. He knew Peter was going to deny him. 
He knew they were going to abandon him. They knew they were going to be shaken to their core. And now Jesus, in a loving way, is going to tell them, do you really believe? Because the answer is no. I think at the end of it, what's beautiful about it is they had a faith, but it was a weak one. I found this quote from J.C. Ryle. He said this, The true secret of spiritual strength is self-distrust and deep humility. Now, anytime you think, let's go, we can do this, you should all of a sudden go, "Uh uh-oh. Because Paul promised, and when you get into 2 Corinthians 12, God does his greatest work when I'm what? Weak. Very weak. But I love how Jesus comes in here in verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it is come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. He's like, I hear you guys, but you're about ready to defect. In fact, he quotes out of there Zechariah 13, 7, when it says, you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And what he's beginning to tell them in this gracious way is, listen, guys, I'm prophesying all of you. Yes, all of you will run away from me. And the idea of running back to their own home doesn't just mean they're going to go back to mommy. Now, they were going to go back to mommy, and, and they were going to be cowering, and they were going to kind of stay low. And even in the book of John, you see John kind of slink in back to the crucifixion and, and huddle up next to, his, to Jesus' mom, Mary. But all of them now, he's saying, you're, you've gone away. And even some of them, when we get to John 21, you're going to see even Peter, who, who Jesus looked at, and he said, upon the faith that you have, Peter, I'm going to build my church. I've called you to be fisher of men. And yet Peter's going to go, I'm not worthy. Let's just go back to fishing. He said to them, look, all of you are going to deny me. Now here's why I love this passage. How incredible is it that the church was founded by a bunch of knuckleheads? Doesn't that give you hope? Man, if Jesus could grab these knuckleheads and build the church that has now encompassed the entire planet, I'm like, maybe me? I also notice inside of this passage, this is the first time that Jesus admits that he's, he's in pain to the guys. You guys are going to abandon me. But here's where we get to this point of this idea of the Father being this one that is ever present with us. In verse 32, he comes in and says, Yet I am not alone, for the Father's with me. His disciples would abandon him, but you look down at this, Jesus assures them, the Father's not going to leave me. Well, what about statements like Jesus when he's hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the crazy thing about this that our little minds can't conceive is just like Abraham did with Isaac when he took him up to be slaughtered. In some way, the father walked with the son and they knew what they were doing and everything was taking place. Jesus went of his own will. The father went of his own will. In fact, it talks about in Isaiah 53.10 that the father was pleased to carry out this unique wrath upon his son. Why was he pleased? Because he was a sadist? No, because he saw us. Why did Jesus absorb it? Because he was a masochist? Are you kidding me? In Hebrews 12, he said he did it for the joy set before him. He saw all of us that would follow him. And in some way, the Father and the Son walked through that. And at this weird moment when Jesus cried that out between the Father and the Son, it must have been a great heartache like we have never known inside of the Trinity. But Jesus was saying, even in that, he's with me. 
Now, you've got to get in your minds now. Why would Jesus be saying this to him, and why would John be writing it? I think at the end of the day, the reason that he was doing it is he was writing to a group of people that were under intense persecution. Probably they felt alone. And in, the head, in his head, what he's trying to connect for these people, bringing this story back in, but that John was bringing back in was it helped them understand. In the same way the Father was through, with Jesus through the lowest, darkest, most difficult time of his life, as an adopted kid, he will be ever present with you through everything. Now, as a kid, my mom always used to send me, you know, Todd, you need to be careful what you do because Jesus is there. Now, there's one side of it that I was like, good, but another side of it, you know this. Those of you that follow Jesus at those lowest moments when it feels like no one else is around, when you're lying in your bed in this weird loneliness, God's there. I don't care what you're going through. The way he was with his one and only son, and he, listen to me, God the Father might take you some, through some of the most difficult moments you can imagine. But in the midst of all of it, you know this, those of you that have walked with him for a little while, in those low moments, God is never more present, and you feel his presence like you've never felt it before, than at that time when everything else is stripped away, and you feel all you have left is the Father. That's what John's getting across here. Not only does he love you, but he's always with you. There are people in the church that teach this fact that somehow we can lose this relationship with God, that we can lose the salvation that Jesus offered us. That's baloney. Once he grabs us, he's got us. And it says already in John, like a hand, he's never going to let us go. No one will snatch us out of his hand. That gives us a confidence to live like we never have. So what do we do with this passage? Well, one of the things that I'm going to be doing or trying to do this week is to memorize Romans 8, 1 through 39. I would love it if a bunch of you tried to memorize with me Romans 8, 1 through 39. Now, if you can't memorize it, because I get it, there's some of you that go, man, I can't even remember my kids' names. I ain't going to do that. That's, that's fine. Now, with that, though, I would love for you to, though, sit down and think through, what are some of the passages out of Romans 8 that teach me about who my relationship, or how my relationship functions with the Father? Who is the Father? In fact, you get to the very end of it in Romans 8, 37 through 39, and we have this amazing passage about the ever-presence of God. Who will separate us from the love of God? No one. Nothing. Nobody. Nunca, if you need another language. It's just this idea in which nothing and so in it, if you have time to memorize it, I'm going to try to memorize Romans 8, 1 through 39 this week. And the other thing, though, I feel like sometimes we read Scripture and we memorize Scripture, but we don't meditate on Scripture. Let me explain meditation. Meditation is not sitting down Indian style with your hands out like this going hummity hummity while you empty your mind. That's Eastern mysticism. Biblical meditation is to fill your mind with the Word of God and think about it. In fact, I think this is one of the greatest lost disciplines inside of the church is the capacity to meditate on Scripture, to think about it. Let it just get deep, deep within your heart. I think one of the things about the Puritans that made them so deep in their walk with Jesus is they meditated on God's Word. They didn't just read it. So if you have time this week, love to have you join me. I'm not going to be testing you next week. Don't worry about it. But, but at the end of it, I just think this could be a powerful way for you to experience who the Father is. Now, let me just put a little, a little period on all of this. 
Jesus has now got into this point like a mountain climber. And he's the chief climber, and he's that one that climbs all the difficult routes and then attaches the rope so that those of us that are his can follow him. And basically what he's doing, he's looking at these guys like the chief climber saying, I've paved the way, let's go. Now what John calls them in 1 John 5 is he calls those of us that have placed our faith, and go to the next slide, he calls us this, he calls us overcomers, just like in verse 33. Does everybody see that in verse 33? He said, I have overcome the world. And what he means by that is, I have won. I am winning. I will win. I am the victorious king. You can count on it. But look at this. Everyone who has been fathered by God, just like Jesus, conquers the world. This is the conquering power that has conquered the world, our faith. Now, who is the person who has conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So today, if you're sitting here and you are a follower of Jesus, you are a conqueror, not because of you, but because of your faith in Jesus alone, period, nothing else. But watch what he's going to do with Revelation. Look at all these statements to the conquerors. To the Ephesians, he said, to the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God, meaning heaven for eternity, no dying, no crying, That's what he has for conquerors. Look at the next one, Revelation 2, verse 11. The one who conquers will in no way be harmed by the second death. Yesterday I walked in with a lady, one of of the followers that that comes to Cornerstone, and she's slowly dying, and and she can kind of barely keep her eyes open. and, And I always do this whenever I go meet with somebody that's about ready to go be with Jesus. I whispered into her into her ear. You beat me to Jesus. But I said to her, you're an overcomer. And because of it, you will not face the second death. Go be with Jesus. That's us that know Jesus. We don't have to fear it. Revelation 2 as well, 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. It just talks about this idea, well, I I will nourish you forever and ever and ever like I nourished the people of Israel. And this one, this next statement, I have no clue. I still don't know what this means. I've studied it and I studied it and I still don't get it. I will give him a white stone and on that stone will be written a new name that no one can understand except the one who receives it. I can't wait to get rid of Nicewanger. I'm like, God, no one understands my name now. Could you give me like Jones in heaven or something? Smith? Go to the next one. Revelation 2, 26 through 28. And to the one who conquers and continues in my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. We're going to rule with Jesus. Next slide. And he will rule, and and he will rule with them Uh, With an iron rod and like clay jars, he will break them to pieces. Just as I have received the right to rule with my father, I will give him, that being us, the morning star. In other words, I will include you into my throne. Look at the next slide. Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be dressed like them in white clothing. In others, we will be pure and clean, no sin, no defilement. And I will never, let me say it again, never, one more time, never erase his name from the book of life, but will declare his name before my father and before his angels. Have you ever just thought in some way the son declares before the father and the angels, Todd, I don't get it. 
Revelation 3 also, 12. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never depart from it. Go to the next slide. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name as well will land upon him. It's just this idea that I will finally be encompassed in the, in the, the lordship of Jesus like it was intended to be. Go to the next one. Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now this is so important. And I said this last week, and let me say it again this week. Jesus wins. And all those who know Jesus and walk with Jesus, who are the children of God, there will be a victory celebration at the end like we have never imagined. Now, the way in which the Bible calls us to celebrate this victory of Jesus, look at this next slide, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, as often as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you proclaim, the idea is it's katangelo, it's you, you announce to everyone the Lord's death until he comes. What's that announcement? The announcement of the Lord's death is Jesus wins. When you hold that, that bread and when you hold that cup in your hand, it is a proclamation to the world that Jesus wins. And so I thought there is no better way today that we could announce the victory of Jesus, that he has overcome the world, and because those of us who know him have overcome the world, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, let me be crystal clear on something, though. If you don't know Jesus, everything that I've preached for the last two weeks do not apply to you. There is no joy for you, only the joy that this world has to offer. There is no love for you other than the love that the Father has for all humanity. And there also is no ever presence of God. And so therefore, we're going to ask you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this Lord's Supper is not for you. I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that anything other than to say, if you don't know Jesus, I would say today is the day to experience the joy and the love in the ever presence of the Father. And so if you don't, and during the Lord's Supper, instead of taking it, if you'd like to come talk to us about how you can know Jesus Christ in a more full way, we would love to talk to you about that. Maybe some of you in here have sin or whatever it is you want to come talk to us about, or maybe you want to get baptized. During the Lord's Supper, come up. We would love to talk to you about all those different things. But for the rest of you out there, we're going to be a little bit quiet today. We're going to be a little bit subdued. But that does not change the victory of Jesus. Jesus wins. You got it? All right, I'm going to bring Dan Lovejoy up, and he's going to be walking us through the Lord's Supper. Let me pray for us as we celebrate. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the reminder of how amazing it is you love us and how amazing it is also that you're ever present with those of us that know you. And also, Father, thank you so much for being included into the victory of Jesus. I pray across this room right now, the Spirit of God would empower us to live that way, to live like who we are. That, Father, we would be constantly reminded, like the disciples that were following Jesus, we can become arrogant, we can become selfish, we can become so in, in totally focused upon ourselves and our comfort and our security that we can forget that it doesn't come in us, it comes in Jesus alone. And so would you provide that right now through the power of your Holy Spirit, just a, a confidence in that. 
And Father, even though we'll be kind of quiet today, would you, through the power of your Spirit, in our spirits, just invigorate a sense of the victory of Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.